Side 6 There is an old Kung story, said Marco softly, his voice like the currents in a quicksand, concerning a lord who had a high tower built. Then he called various wise Kung together and said, I will give my finest oyster farm and the famed kelp beds of Chukpk to the Kung who can determine the height of that tower using nothing but a barometer. Those who fail will be exiled to the dry lands, because that's the way it goes for the not wise enough. So the wise Kung tried, and although they could find the height to within a few chetids, this was not considered accurate enough, and they were sent to the dry lands. I like folk tales, said Kin, but do you think this is— Then one day, said Marco loudly, the wisest Kung, who hadn't hazarded an answer yet, took his barometer to the home of the Lord's Master Builder and said, I will give you this beautiful barometer if you will be so good as to tell me the height of the tower. A shadow loomed over them as Silver thrust her fangs over the deck awning. Sorry to interrupt, she said, but you might be interested in this. They looked past her. Most of the men had stopped rowing and were staring up into the sky. Kin stared with them. There were three specks moving across the haze like high-altitude jets. "'Vapor trails,' said Marco. "'Obviously they have come looking for us. We won't have to go and offer them our barometer.' "'What can you see, Silver?' Kin asked. The shand twanged a fang. "'They appear to be flying lizards.' she said. The method of propulsion seems mysterious, but we may learn more, since they are losing height fast. Live tugged at Kin's arm. Around them, men were methodically tossing oars and bundles into the water and diving over the side after them. The little man seemed to be desperately searching for words. Finally, he remembered one. Fire? he suggested, and tumbled her backward into the sea. The coldness numbed her, but she knew enough to twist and kick out convulsively. Treading water and gripping a handy oar, she watched the sky. The specks had made a wide turn, and the distant double thump of a sonic boom rolled across the sea. Marco and Silver had stayed on the boat, staring. Soon three lizard shapes with theatrically bat-like wings glided over the wave tops to circle the boat in perfect formation, treading the air with two sets of cruel talons. Wisps of smoke trailed from their dilated nostrils. Then they drifted towards the north, becoming specks again as they made another turn. They also gained height. If they were aircraft, thought Kin, I'd say this was going to be a bombing run. As the first dragon plummeted towards the ship, Live put one hand firmly on her head and pushed her underwater. She bobbed up furious, her ears ringing. The water was steaming, smoke was rising from the boat. There was a sudden mound in the water beside her, and Marco surfaced, gasping and cursing. A bigger splash further along marked Silver's return from the depths. "'What happened? What happened?' gasped Kin. "'It hovered and breathed fire,' said Silver. "'And no! Bloody lizard does that to me!' screamed Marco. He struck out for the charred hull, rocking it violently in his attempt to get aboard. Another beast drifted down. 
there was a quiet splash as silver somersaulted and kicked away for the green depths. There was also a groan from the water-treading men as they saw Marco uncloaked for the first time, grasping an oar with all four hands. As the dragon homed in, it was bright enough to tread air just out of reach of Marco's impromptu weapon, wing-beats making spray patterns on the sea while it gathered its breath. Something white shot through the water like a cork and gripped a pair of hovering claws. For a second Silver and the startled creature hung there. Then the wings met with a clap as they shot down into the sea, and Kin heard a distinct hiss. The third dragon must have been the brightest, thought Kin. The brightest always fought last. It was too late for it to stop its flight. Instead it passed over the boat with its wings spread like parachutes, and as it thundered by above his head, Marco screamed and leapt. He was wearing his lift belt. The dragon tried to twist in mid-air, tumbled, regained its balance, and tried to flee for height and safety. It didn't work. On the other side of the boat the water foamed and a wingtip beat the surface listlessly. Then the hull canted sharply. Silver was climbing aboard. The men around Kin shouted and struck out, laughing as they heaved themselves up the side. High above the dogfight the surviving dragon screamed and disappeared speedily into the east giving Kin a short and tantalising glimpse of its high-speed propulsion. Those horror-story wings were too clumsy for anything except ponderous flight. To travel fast, the dragon folded them along its side, bent its head back under its body, and exhaled. By the time it was too far away for Kin to see details, its breath was yellow-hot. She followed something else down the sky as it tumbled lazily. It was a dragon head. Shortly afterwards, although to the silent crowd on the boat it seemed much longer. The body followed, wings still spread wide, spiralling slowly with Marco climbing to its back, and still hacking with a knife. When he hit the water a cheer went up. It turned to anger when they saw that Silver was dragging her dragon aboard, still alive. When the men moved hurriedly aside they gave Kin a good view. The beast flopped mournfully on the deck, water streaming from its wings. It raised its dripping head towards her and sneezed violently. Two jets of warm water hit Kin on the legs. Marco was helped aboard by all four arms. His comb blazed blood-red, and as he stood up amid the admiring crowd he raised his black-stained knife over his head and yodelled, Ref tag! Email! Ref tag! Pelk! Kin looked across at Silver, who was unscrewing her fangs. The shand grimaced. "'Tell me again about his being officially human,' she said. "'I keep forgetting.' "'What?' asked Kin. "'Do you intend to do with that?' One of the men beside her had drawn his sword and was offering it proudly to the Shand, hilt first. Silver ignored him. "'It's dead,' she said. "'But we have the body. I would very much like to know how an organic creature can breathe fire.' She grabbed the corpse by neck and tail and dragged it aft. Marco swaggered over to Kin. "'I triumph!' he shouted. "'Yes, Marco.' "'They declare war on us. They send dragons, but they reckoned without me.' "'Yes, Marco.' "'Together they conspire against me, yet I overcome!' he screamed, eyes glazed. Then his expression faded. "'You just think—' "'I'm a paranoid kung, don't you?' he said sulkily. "'Since you mention it, I'm proud to be human. Make no mistake. As for the other,' he said, turning, 
Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. She watched him stride back to the men who clustered around him, frightened of everything except immediate physical danger, and as human as a tiger. Silver was gazing ruefully at the dumb waiter. It was not damaged, but the plastic panelling would never be the same again. When the men were at the oars again, Kin took out her suit toolkit and arranged the dragon corpse as best she could on the tiny foredeck. The kit was small but comprehensive. A marooned spaceman could use it to survive on an alien world for years. Some had. Kin selected a medical scalpel. Later she opened the kit fully and found a multi-chisel. A minute later she reached in and assembled the vibro-saw. The scream as it skidded and juddered over the scales set her teeth on edge, but she didn't switch off until the blade broke. She went to find Marco and Silver, who were taking a turn at the oars, and hunkered down between them. "'Those dragons are jet-powered,' she said. "'I could open the neck. It's lined with some sort of light, spongy substance. It cut like jelly. When I tried the welding laser on it, it didn't even warm up.' "'How about the body?' said Marco. "'Those scales are tough.' You will note I am now holding the remains of a vibro-saw. They say a saw like this will cut hull metal. Silver grinned. One finds oneself thinking in terms of creatures that drink kerosene. The Kung snorted. No doubt you neglected to run a geiger over it, he said. No, I tested it all right. Nothing. I am surprised. Want to hear what happened when I cut the neck off and dropped the geiger head into the body cavity? I am a gog. It's as hot as hell in there. That creature is a living atomic furnace, and you can't tell me it evolved, not on an Earth-type world. It's a construct. That's where you'll find the disc-builders, wherever that thing came from. The centre of the disc, said Silver thoughtfully. Kin gawped, and the Shand nodded casually as she leaned on the oar. I have some facility with languages, as you know, she said. I have been talking to some of these men. We've got to the Saiyan point stage. They see these things sometimes. In these parts they come from the east, but when the boats sail down south, the dragons pass over from the north-east. Therefore I deduce they come from the central regions. Why are you staring? Marco already wants to go to the centre, said Kin. He wants to offer them a barometer, I think. The next dawn saw them sailing through an increasingly choppy sea into a fjord between white mountains. There was a colony of turf-roofed stone huts and some sparse meadows. People hurried down to the shingle, then shied back noisily, as with the crew in their seats smirking like demons, Silver dropped over the side and ran the boat up the beach by herself. There was a glassy-eyed dragon-head roped to the prow. Live led them into a long, high-roofed hut that made Kin wonder whatever happened to Grendel. But of course Grendel was slinking alongside her, swinging his too many arms and eyeing the crowds for possible assassins. When her eyes grew accustomed to the gloom inside, she saw an open fire in a pit, and beside it a man sitting on a rough stool. One leg was stretched out in front of him. He was red-headed and bearded. He rose unsteadily from his stool and embraced Live both men holding themselves as if there was just the faintest possibility that the other might attempt a stabbing. Then the younger man spoke. It was a lengthy saga. After a while the older man was taken outside and shown what remained of the dead dragon. He was introduced to Silver, 
and hobbled several times around Marco, who looked at him sidelong. He grinned at Kin in a way that expressed horizontal desires. Encouraged by this display, other inhabitants turned up. Kin's attention was drawn to two men in black robes. One of them was looking at Marco fearfully and reciting some sort of incantation. Silver's head swivelled round. She spoke a sentence in the same language. From then on, Silver did the translating. The tongue is Latin, the Reman tongue, except that these men refer to Rome, not Reem. Kin considered it. Romulus and Remus, she said at last, the founders of Reem. Ever hear the legend? I think I recall it in a folklore anthology. So on the disc, Remus won the naming privilege. What else did they say? Oh, quite a lot of gibberish about demons, the usual primitive world stuff. Ever hear the word troll? They keep looking at Marco and saying it. There's also a lot about gods, I think. Kin looked around. These people were either primitive or superb actors. Perhaps the gods were the disc-builders. Ask about them, she said. A long conversation followed. Sometimes the older of the men would point to the sky. Live and his father watched carefully. Finally, Silver nodded and turned to Kin. "'Let's see if I get this right now,' she said. "'There's a whole lot of gods about, but the top god is called Christos. The high priest lives at Rome. There was also another kind of god who created this world in six days.' "'Anticipating your questions,' she said, raising a paw to interrupt Kin, "'I asked for more details. This creator god has a lot of minor assistant gods with wings, and there's another, lesser being called Saitan, who sounds like an alligator. There's a lot of other usual religious stuff, too. Six days is too fast, said Kin. It'd take the company six years, even with prefabricated parts. Frankly, I'd put it all down as a myth. It's unusually straightforward, Silver pointed out. In most myths, the world is usually made up from the supreme being's stepfather's pancreas, or the blood of the sacred beetle or something. Kin frowned. Earth had plenty of religions, and had exported as many as she'd imported. For every sect of humans engaged in complicated ethnic time rituals, there was a group of saffron-dyed shandy drumming and chanting through the frozen shandy streets. Generally, company people, being in the creation business, didn't bother with religion, or went along with something basic and non-controversial, like Wicca or Buddhism. Kin had drunk of many cups in her time, just out of curiosity. Stand up, kneel down, climb a mountain, chant, go naked, whirl, dance, fast, abhor, gorge, pray. Sometimes it was enjoyable, but it was always introverted, unreal. Live's father spoke at length to one of the priests who spoke to Silver. Silver laughed and replied, "'He wants to buy the Valhalla oven,' she translated. "'The what?' "'The dumb waiter. He says that he knows that in Valhalla all men eat and drink endlessly, and now he knows it is because they have these ovens that grind out food and drink.' "'Tell him it's not for sale.' She looked directly at Eirik Rauder. Red Eric. Back on earth there was a warm mound in the heart of Valhalla, where the water from the five inland seas spilled over into the long fjord. Eric's beard, they called the water. Red Eric had been buried in the mound, 
It was a big tourist attraction. Silver took a deep breath. He also wants us to adjust the sun, she said. The man, seeing Kin's face, began to speak slowly in Latin. There has been spring in winter, he says. The sun has sometimes dimmed. On several nights the stars have flickered, and, um, something happened to one of the planets. Kin stared. Then she walked into the hall where Silver had deposited the dumbwaiter, and dialed for a big cup of the sweet ale. She brought it back and put it in Eirik's scarred hands. Tell him that was our fault. Tell him that if only we can learn the secrets of the world, we will replace the planet and do what we can about the sun. Did he say the stars flickered? Apparently this is expected. The aforesaid Christos was born almost a thousand years ago, and it is widely believed that he will come again around about now. Take a look at the sea, will you? Kin turned. The waves were lashing at the beach, even here. She could hear the thunder of the storm out in the open sea, but the sky was blue, windless. I said the disc wasn't a reliable artifact, she said. It sounds like its governing systems are going wrong. Eidic doesn't seem all that worried, Silver. He says he's seen and heard of a lot of gods. He can take gods or leave them alone. If we can repair the weather, he will give us much timber. Timber? Silver turned to look at the village. It seems to be a scarce commodity here, she said. Notice the lack of trees. This could be the climatic optimum, Kin told herself. On earth it had been. The northern expansion had taken place during a long warm spell, when even a strip of coastal Greenland was reasonably habitable. Here, on some nights, the stars flickered out. Marco and Kin spent the night in the hall, although Silver opted for the chill air of the boat. No one had attempted to bundle Kin off with the women. Goddesses were different. She lay looking at the glow of the fire. The boom of the surf was still loud. Tides, she thought. That half-pint moon couldn't cause them. There must be some sort of regulated rise and fall of the sea, and it's going haywire. She longed for a sleep set. They left your mouth tasting like an ape's urinal, but they were quick. You didn't suffer from insomnia with a ziz, or get bothered by rocks sticking in your back. A short, deep, dreamless sleep. Finally she gave up, got up, and walked through the darkened hall. The man at the door moved aside hastily to let her pass. The sky was ablaze with fake stars. Kin shivered, but she couldn't help but admire the ersatz universe that blazed over the dark, sea-noisy fjord. This wasn't Earth. It was a disk about 15,000 miles across, massing around 5.67 by 10 to the 21 tons. That meant it either had generated gravity or neutronium veneer as a bedrock. It spun very slowly, like a tossed coin in treacle, dragging with it a fake sun and a fake moon and a family of fake planets. She knew all that, but sitting here it was hard to believe. She shivered as the frost clawed at her. Frozen starlight. A clockwork world. A world without astronomy. Maybe there was astronomy, but it was a horrible joke on the astronomers. A world where the venturesome dropped into the abyss. Dragons. Trolls. A myth-mash. She found a planet, near what for want of a better word had to be called the disk's horizon. No, it was moving too fast for a planet. And then it was suddenly a pennant of fire in the sky. 
It hit the disc somewhere to the east. Kin told herself she could feel the impact. She ran towards the line of beach ships to where a broad shape glittered with frost. Silver? Foolish, foolish, how many shandy on the disc? Ah, Kin, no doubt you saw it. What was it? Most of the main part of our ship. It was only a matter of time. Marco should have exploded it rather than just leave it, and we can only hope it landed in the sea or a desert. I was hoping it would impact on the underside of the disc. It's certainly a good way of saying we're here to any disc lords. First we take out a planet, then we drop our ship on them, said Kin. I noticed something before I saw the ship, said Silver. See that planet right down there? What would that be? If this was Earth, that'd be Venus in that position. No, it— Quite so. It is moonless. Kin felt a tingle of excitement. The disk builders had forgotten something. How could they? Venus and Adonis, a moon almost as big as Luna, had always dominated Earth's dawn or sunset sky. Why leave out the moon in the disk universe? A mystery. One could write a filmy on astronomy and sociology, said Silver. For example, I have always felt that humans were the first into space because of the continual reminder that in our universe everything orbits something. You always had that other double-world system in your sky to hint that not everything revolves around the Earth, whereas we had the twin, and the Kung couldn't see the sky at all. Had your sister-world not had her moon, I doubt if your history would have been quite so uncomplicated. Together they sat and watched the moonless world sink into solitude in the faintly glowing sky. Kin snuggled against Silver's fur and wondered whether the dumb waiter would be safe. Probably. The men had a healthy respect for Marco. Silver was thinking about the same thing, because she said, "'Kin, are you awake?' "'If the dumbwaiter misfunctions, you must promise me you will stun me and allow Marco to put me to death.' Kin sat up, grimacing in the darkness. "'Certainly not. Anyway, how could we stun you?' "'You have a palm-stunner on you at this moment. I have noticed it on several occasions,' said Silver. "'I was taught to observe. You will kill me for fear of what I will become. My fear.' Kin grunted noncommittally and lay back, thinking about Shandy. They couldn't take Kung or human proteins. Before the dumbwaiters were common, it meant that Shandy could only go off-world with a personal deep-freeze. There had been a time when a human ship had been ferrying four Shandy ambassadors to Greater Earth, and the freezer malfunctioned. The ambassadors were civilized. Usually, when a Shand was deprived of food, it turned into a ravening animal within two days. A million years of evolution was drowned in a wash of saliva. With the ambassadors, it took fifty-six hours. None survived. The last one took her life after awakening from a bloated sleep and seeing what lay around her in the cabin. The average Shand wouldn't have done so, but the average Shand was not an ambassador trained to think in cosmopolitan ways. The plain truth was that the Shandy liked eating Shand. Can you fit ritual cannibalism into a civilization? They did. There was the game. The rules were ancient, venerated, and simple. Two shandy would enter from opposite sides, a stretch of tundra or forest set aside for the purpose. There were special rules about weapons. The winner ate well. 
Curiosity overwhelmed Kin. "'Did you ever play the game, Silver?' she asked softly. "'Why, yes. Three times when the urge was strong in my mouth,' said the Shand. "'Twice at home, and once illegally elsewhere. My opponent in the latter case was the Regis Professor of Linguistics at the University of Gelt. Much of her stocks my freezer at home even now. I grieve that her death may largely have been in vain.' "'But you've got dumb-waiters now. There's no need for the game.' Silver shrugged. "'Now it is a tradition,' she said. "'What we did out of need we do for—sport, I think it would be called. Although there are elements of bravado, identification with our ancient past, the affirming of our shandness. You think this is barbaric?' It was a statement, not a question. Kin shook her head anyway. "'Some humans have taken part in the game,' said Silver. "'They pay highly for the chance to prove their—what? Machismo? "'If they win, all they get is the head of their victim to hang on the wall. "'That is barbaric.' "'Um, what happens if the Shand wins?' "'She gets two convicted criminals.' Kin thought, "'This is what Shandy do on their homeworld, and none of your business.' You can't apply humans' values to aliens, but you keep trying. The train of thought was derailed by a scream from the big hall. A man burst out into the starlight and tumbled over on the grass, clutching at his side. Kin landed running, snatching the stunner from her belt. She heard the heavy crash on the shingle as Silver landed behind her. The hall was full of dark fighting shapes. Kin jerked aside as the leather-clad man ran out, followed by a tall man hefting an axe. She pointed the stunner and fired. The effect was not immediate. The two kept on running. Then their legs collapsed under them in slow motion, and they hit the ground asleep. Kin entered the hall with the stunner turned to minimum power maximum beam, swinging it like a scythe. A fighter staggered towards her with a raised sword and began to dream on his feet, sending her sprawling as fifteen stone of Norsemen cannoned into her. For a moment she suffocated in a reek of stale sweat and badly tanned hides, then managed to roll away. The stunner was gone, dropped in the collision. She was in time to see a teetering giant pick it up curiously and look down the barrel. In the middle of the tumult, a look of perfect peace passed over his face. He fell like a tree. Another man rushed at Kin. She kicked out and upwards, and was rewarded with seeing his eyes cross before he rolled over, screaming and clutching his groin. There wasn't a fight going on, it was a brawl. Most of the men were simply hacking blindly at everything. She managed to get to her feet, almost slipping on the curiously muddy floor. Through a gap in the figures she saw Marco dodging like a demon in the torchlight, a sword in all four hands. The dumbwaiter hummed behind him, a sticky, sweet smell in the air. There was a bellow from the door, and Eirik hobbled in, his face contorted with rage. He was flailing about with his crutch. Then the roof fell in. One of the fighters backed into Kin, and she felled him with a backhanded chop as the dawn-pale light flooded the hall. Part of the nearest wall bowed inward and crumbled away. There was a brief glimpse of a wide, white-haired foot. Silver appeared at the roof-hole, black against the gold sky. There was silence, broken only by the whimpers of the wounded and a background trickle. Silver roared again, there was a brief moment of pandemonium as those who could rushed for the doorway. Kin looked down. She was standing ankle-deep in a sticky, frothy puddle. 
She looked at the dumb waiter. A yellow-brown waterfall was spilling out of the food hatch, filling a deepening puddle. Marco looked at her, trying to focus. Then he sighed contentedly and fell backwards. Resignedly, knowing what to expect, Kin held her cupped hand under the stream and tasted it. It was sweet and potent, a super beer. Here and there in the pool darker stains were spreading from the wounded and dying. Kin stopped the flow and set the machine to producing an antidote. When it delivered a bowl of foul blue liquid, she dragged the Kung up by his comb, tipped the bowl into his mouth in one motion, and let him fall back into the mire. After Silver dropped through the ruined roof, she and Kin toured the hall. The waiter was instructed to produce the various seal and heel ointments in its repertoire, and after some thought Kin dialed for limb replacement stimulants. Usually such sophisticated medicine was frowned on for its cultural shock effects. But hell, the disc was one big cultural shock. With some of the wounded she plastered the stuff on like mud and hoped. After a while Marco groaned and sat up. He looked at them hazily. Kin ignored him. Lives, men, told them about the waiter producing alcohol, he said thickly. Then when I gave them a demonstration, they began acting irrationally and demanding more. And then they started fighting. A fucking Valhalla machine, muttered Kin, and turned back to her work. There was a hoarse chuckle from the darkness under the roof, and a black feather floated down. They left at noon, the colony gathered to see them off. Many of the men had new white scars. Some displayed tiny limbs already growing from healed stumps. But several had died in the hall. The Valhalla machine had been too efficient. Eirik made a long speech in Latin and produced rare furs and two white hunting birds as farewell gifts. "'Say we can't accept,' said Kin. "'Say anything. We can't afford to carry the weight. Say we can't go and repair the sun if we carry too much weight. It's almost true.' Eirik listened to Silver's careful reply and nodded graciously. "'I'd like to give him something, though,' said Kin. "'Why?' snapped Marco. "'Because she's still afraid the company might be behind the disc, and she wants to apologise. Isn't that right?' said Silver. Kin ignored her. "'Ask him for some timber,' she said. "'Scraps. And grass or hay, old bones, anything that was living. What I have in mind will mean the waiter will want feeding.' They set the dumbwaiter up as a timber mill. After the first metre of fragrant smooth plank had been extruded from the hatch, the colony worked like robots. Great drifts of seaweed washed up by the pounding sea helped swell the heat by the input hopper. Today the sea moved like liquid mountains. Kin took the others aside while the colony was carting planks. "'We fly,' she said. "'Overland as much as possible, but we fly.' If the belt power looks like running out before we get to the hub, then we'll charge up one belt from the others, and Marco or I will go on alone. That means Silver can stay with the waiter. I'm inclined to agree, said Silver. There can be nothing to lose. Marco should be the one to go on, of course. I am big enough to scare predators, and you can survive by engaging any male humans in sexual congress if necessary. Marco is best equipped to reach the hub. It was an elephantine attempt at diplomacy, but Marco turned his head away. "'I am equipped for nothing,' he said distantly. "'I allowed myself to be provoked by humans. I am shamed.' "'The blame is not wholly yours,' said Silver generously. "'But, Silver, I outnumbered them one to thirty. 
End of side six.